reading from the scriptures, Mark, verse, or chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, Look, he is calling Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who had stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity of worship, for worship in song, for worship in prayer, for worship in your word. We Pray for us, the hearers of the word, that you might work in our hearts to make us receptive to it, that we would be fertile ground for the sowing of this seed, that we would not have hardened hearts and blinded eyes, that you would open those eyes, open those ears, open our hearts, that we might receive it with gladness and thanksgiving, but yet also with discernment, looking for the truth of your scriptures and that which is preached. We pray for the preachers of our word. Thank you for Pastor Durham and his opening up of the Psalms. We pray for Pastor Kaiser and his opening up of this text in in Mark, that you would uh, give him wisdom, that you would give him encouragement in being a minister of your word, that the great and holy calling of being a preacher of the scriptures uh, would be a time of gladness and a joyful burden. We do thank you indeed for your holy scriptures through which comes life, that uh, that would be life spread throughout this congregation, throughout this city, throughout this country, and throughout this fallen and dying world, that the promises of life might be fulfilled. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You can tell that Glenn is a detail person. You saw him over there guarding the way in case I absentmindedly uh, came up here too soon. (laughs) He knows me well. I'm an absent-minded professor. Well, this is the third sermon, the third miracle that we have been looking at in the Passion of Christ. It's the ripping of the temple veil from the top to the bottom. And this indicates that our access to God's presence was not accomplished by man. It's not ripped from the bottom to the top as if man, you know, started this. It's ripped from the top to the bottom to indicate that our access into God's presence was accomplished by God and by God alone. And I think it's a a wonderful text to meditate upon, even in connection with communion, because in a sense, this uh, showed that this was the only way that communion could be opened up for us. And I want to look, first of all, at the various purposes for that veil. You might be surprised by the first one that's listed in your outlines there. Uh, The veil had as one of its purposes to separate God's people 
from God's presence. It was to separate them. And even the way it was woven symbolized that fact, not just the color. The color was heaven, uh, blue, uh, to symbolize heaven. But woven into the fabric of this veil were two cherubim with flaming swords barring the way into the Holy of Holies. Does that remind you of anything in Genesis? In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of uh, Adam and Eve, they're expelled from the garden. And what does God place there? He places two cherubim, same word, uh, with flaming swords, barring the way to the tree of life, which was their communion, right? They, that symbolized communion. And they said they're barred completely from that. And in Exodus chapter 26, God said those cherubim, those two cherubim need to be put into the fabric of the veil that separated the holy place from the uh, holy of holies. And uh, I think it's a very, very significant fact that those cherubim, when it is ripped from top to bottom and separated into two parts, are no longer visible, okay? That uh, access into the Holy of Holies is no longer barred. And I think it's especially significant that in the uh, book of Revelation, when he talks to the various uh, churches, he uses old covenant symbols to indicate that what was once barred is now freely accessible. To one, he says, the secret manna that nobody could ever see that was in the Holy of Holies, now we're going to be able to partake of. But I like the one he gives to the church of Ephesus. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's saying it's no longer barred. So when that temple curtain was torn in two, he is saying, no longer are you going to have an angel that's barring you from the presence uh, of communion with God. That which was lost by Adam, the first Adam that uh, Glenn mentioned, gained by the second Adam. So let me give you just a couple proof texts that are in your outline. Exodus 26, 33, God said, the veil shall be a divider for you. Uh, other passages, he shall not go near. Another passage, the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Uh, God's people only had fellowship through the sprinkling of the blood which the high priest would put in once a year into the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. And uh, he, when he went into there, it was with fear and trembling. So great was the danger of the high priest when he went in there that he had a rope tied around his ankle so that if he got struck dead, people could pull him out. <laughs> Uh, how do you like that on your job description? You know, you got to wear a rope when you go into this place. Why? Um, well, the holiness of God is a fearful holiness. And so that's the first purpose of this veil. It was to keep sinners out of God's presence. Now, the second purpose is really the flip side of this. It's very positive. It protected God's people from death. God was concerned for his people. He loved his people. And he put this veil there to protect them. Uh, God had warned them in Leviticus 16:2, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And there were times in Israel's history, and I've recorded a couple in your outline there, uh, like 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 5, 2 Chronicles 7, when the glory cloud didn't just fill the holy of holies, it filled the whole temple and it was so overwhelming, the priests, everybody had to flee from the temple. Even Moses, who was as close to God as any person could get in the Old Testament, it said that he could not go into the tabernacle uh, because of the glory that was in there. 
He needed protection. Exodus 40, verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So that's the second purpose. God is protecting the people that he loves. Thirdly, it symbolized the condition for entrance into uh, heaven as being perfect holiness. And even the, it talks about the perfection and the beauty and the artistry that was on there. But when the priest went through once a year, he couldn't go as himself. He had a sign on him and he had a meter on his head symbolizing Jesus Christ. It said holiness to the Lord and it was pointing forward to the one uh, who alone could gain access uh, into God's presence, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the fourth purpose. It symbolizes Jesus. Now I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And this is a marvelous book for giving kind of an exposition of what some of the old covenant ceremonies and what the temple and all of those uh, pots and pans and all those kinds of things uh, were for. And Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 20, uh, talks about uh, him going uh, into the holy place. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, I want you to catch that phrase. His body, his flesh, is what was symbolized by that veil. That's going to be very important in a moment when we look at that. So he says, uh, through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our, our hearts sprinkled with the, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It was imperative that Christ's flesh be torn, that he be crucified so that we could enter into the holiest of holies, into heaven, into God's presence uh, with boldness. And so I think it was very appropriate that the moment that Jesus died, that his flesh died, that the veil that symbolized his flesh be torn at exactly the same time. Called a veil of cunning design and beauty represented the perfection of Jesus. And we're going to be seeing it in a, a few minutes how incredibly important that is. Now, let's go on and look at the miracle itself because I think the way the miracle was done is uh, really uh, cool. Uh, I think the first question that needs to be asked is which veil was it? There were two veils. There was a veil uh, that, that was the inner veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Then there was another veil that separated the outer court from the holy place. And there have been some liberals and even in recent years some conservatives who have said, well, maybe it is after all the outer veil. And the reason they say that is because there were secular historians at that time that talked about the outer veil falling to the ground. A veil, by the way, is a curtain. Okay, a massive curtain. And um, there, during the earthquake, it says in uh, Josephus and some other references that the massive several-ton lintel broke and the whole curtain fell down so that people could see into the holy place. Now, we agree that did happen, but this veil that is torn was not the outer veil. It was the inner veil that hid uh, the Ark of the Covenant, that hid the, uh, the Holy of Holies. <coughs> And if it was the outer veil, it wouldn't be a, a miracle. That's point number B. And um, 
it wouldn't even be talking about our access into the Holy of Holies, which is the whole point of this uh, sermon today. And so they say, well, maybe it was just a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. And I think it was that, but it goes way, way beyond that. Historically, the church has always held it was the inner veil for four reasons. I've listed them in your outlines there. Uh, first of all, conservative scholars point out that the word that's used here, katapetasma, uh, is always used of the inner veil. And even when it's translating the Old Testament um, word for inner veil, it's always this word that is used. So the language itself necessitates the traditional interpretation. Second, the Greek word for temple is not the ordinary word for the temple complex, which is hieron. This is naos. This is the inner sanctuary that he is talking about. So it's the curtain of the inner sanctuary, not of the outer one. A third, Hebrews definitely interprets it as being the inner veil, so that ought to settle the question. Fourth, I think the theological point that's made by John in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, and he's applying the earthly temple to what's going on in heaven, is that we can now see the Ark of the Covenant. So it has to be the inner veil. He says the Ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And so um, once the outer curtain fell down, the inner curtain is torn. What's the first thing people see when the lights come on? They're looking straight into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the mercy seat is. God was forcing to the attention of all of the people who were present uh, what this, uh, this time in redemption uh, history had accomplished. And then this fact highlights the further fact that this is not an accident. This was a miracle. It was a perfect design by the Lord. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, uh, we've got several accounts indicating, I shouldn't say several, we've got three accounts indicating that the outer doors were opened. A voice said, we are leaving here, and the sound of a multitude leaving. And uh, they said that that was 40 years before Jerusalem fell. Well, that would be the year that Christ is crucified, right? And Josephus pinpoints it even stronger. Josephus said those doors opened and the voice saying, we are leaving here, happened on the Passover day. And so if that is true, what would have happened when the crowds were outside is it would have been just like looking down a corridor. It wouldn't just be the priests who were in the temple. All of the people who were waiting outside as well would have been able to see straight into the Holy of Holies. And uh, there are... Uh, seven independent ancient witnesses to the opening of the temple door. You can ask me about them. There are Nazarene 2 and Pilate 11.1. There's other things that won't make any sense to you unless you know the history, but I, I can give those to you. And five of them explicitly mention the tearing of the veil. Now, anyway, the curtain which stood before the Holy of Holies was a massive, uh, amazing curtain. It was, um, get the dimensions here, it was 60 feet long 30 feet tall it was the thickness of a man's hand and it took 300 men to lift this curtain into place because it was so heavy and it was so awkward to get into place now there's debate amongst people as to whether the thickness of the hand means this way one inch or this way four inch uh, four inches and you've got scholars who take both sides but either way it was a huge curtain which one ancient author at the time that titus took that curtain out he conquered the city took the curtain out he said it was so strong that teams of wild horses could not tear it apart. So um, it was a miracle. I had one um, uh, atheist um, 
article that I read, and he was trying to use this to prove that the Bible is wrong. He said, it's clear in history that Titus got that curtain, and he said it was all in one piece. So the Bible's wrong. Well, what he fails to go on to read is that same source says they change the veil every year. <laughs> so they had a new, uh, several new veils by the time Titus conquered uh, um, the te- uh, Jerusalem. Also look at verse 38 of um, uh, Mark 15. And look at how it's described. It says, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why that little detail? Again, it's to show it's not by the actions of men. Thirty feet up in the air where no man can, can reach, there's a rip that begins and it doesn't stop till they're parted into two parts. The text is very clear. It's not just falling to the ground. They are parted into two parts. The third detail, which shows that this miracle, that this was a miracle, uh, is that it happened at the cry of Christ. Look at verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you compare Matthew and you compare Mark, and it, it seems like it's the voice of Christ that causes the earthquake and that causes this temple veil to be torn in two. The same voice that uh, uh, was uh, present at the creation week and said, let there be light, and there has to be light, and said, uh, let there be a firmament, and the waters have to part for land to appear, and said, uh, let the waters abound, now cries out, it is finished, then gives a triumph cry, and the veil cannot do anything but part. Uh, is almost the, the, the emphasis that seems to be coming from there. Now, there are other details as well that are significant. Take a look at verses 33 through 34. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it was at the ninth hour that... Jesus dies. Now, on Jewish timing, it's at day, daylight, dawn, that you start counting your hours. So the sixth hour would be noon, ninth hour would be three o'clock, and those are the precise hours. We looked at those hours of darkness last week. Those are the precise hours at which they would be preparing all of the temple lamb, over 250,000 lambs, to be slaughtered between 3 and 5 o'clock. They had to quit at 5 so people could get back to their places before the Sabbath began. And uh, the Sabbath would begin at 6 o'clock, right? And so what we've got here is uh, just an amazing thing. During the time that they would have had to be getting everything ready so that it could get done from 3 to 5, be very efficiently taken care of, they couldn't prepare. All of these lambs are being brought in But now they can't be preparing them. They have, well, Josephus says uh, most uh, Passovers, there were over 3 million people, Jews, from traveling from all over the world who came there. Not all of those would be present at the temple because it only took, um, you had one lamb per 10 people to 20 people, somewhere in that range. And he said that there were 250,000 lambs, more than that, that were slain. So you've got at least 250,000 Men who are waiting at the temple to get their lamb, all of a sudden the lights go out. They can't go anywhere. They haven't brought any lanterns with them for fear of getting trampled. They probably just remain 
And uh, it's just an amazing thing to me how God forces these people to be meditating upon the final, the only uh, Lamb of God who is to be slain. And uh, some of the details just make goosebumps on my back when I think about it. Uh, they had a system all worked out that went very, very smoothly. So you got these 250,000 people packed in there. The lights go on. What happens? Well, if you put all of the sources together, here's what's going to happen. Those doors on the outside are going to open up. A voice is going to say, we are leaving here. They sound The sound of rushing uh, multitude leaving, possibly angels, who knows, but there's three different sources that speak about that. And then there's this earthquake that they feel. They see this massive, several ton lintel falling, breaking, falling to the ground. The outer uh, uh, curtain falls down. They're looking into the holy place and they see in the holy place that curtain being torn apart. God orchestrated this in such a way that a great bulk of the nation was there so that the nation could not deny there was a complete connection between the crucifixion of Jesus and what was going on here uh, in the temple. Uh, amazing thing. And uh, it's no wonder to me that uh, Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Um, God had prepared them to receive the gospel. There was no denying in their minds that something amazing had happened. So all of those things show this really was a miraculous uh, event, providentially timed. Now I want to take a look at why some of these priests would have so quickly come to Christ in the book of Acts. Uh, what lessons did they learn? Well, first, the veil teaches that sin separates man from God. Every priest had had that drilled into his consciousness from the time that he was a little child. Uh, all around them, it, it, they had all kinds of symbols to teach them of their unworthiness, of their sinfulness. And that veil meant that sinners could not go into the holy place. So if that veil is torn and it's torn by God, that implies that the solution to sin has been taken care of, right? And of course, every time we celebrate the Lord's table, we're looking back to that solution of sin the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second lesson, which they would have learned, is that man's work is not enough. And the Pharisees wanted to add a little bit of man's work so that there could be a little bit that we contribute to salvation. And it's not like they denied grace. They spoke about grace a lot, just like Roman Catholics speak about grace a lot. Many people think Roman Catholics don't believe in grace. They do. They talk about grace all the time. It's grace plus works, right? You have the mixture of the two. And so... Uh, for the Pharisees, it wasn't an issue of grace or no grace, but whether their works uh, helped merit uh, God's presence, helped them uh, merit uh, salvation. And I think in the same way, we have missed the significance of the torn veil if we think that we can earn the right to come to the Lord's table through trying harder, by learning the catechism, um, through any other kinds of good works, the only way we can come worthily to the Lord's table is through the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We're sinners. We, we can't gain access to God's fellowship, to his communion, by ripping the veil ourselves. It's only the Lord who can do that. And it's not only Roman Catholics who succumb to legalism. Our flesh is constantly prone to do that. We Presbyterians can do it. Now, we do it much more subtly, uh, you know, we don't add uh, any works to the time when we come to salvation. But like I mentioned, when we come to the Lord's table, many times we think in terms of legalism. 
in terms of works righteousness. And so I want you to clear out of your mind completely any idea that we can merit the communion that the Lord has promised to his believers by trying harder, by being righteous on the one hand, or barring yourself. How many Presbyterians bar themselves from the Lord's table, not because they lack faith, they have faith, but because they think that uh, they've got to contribute something uh, to the Lord's table. No, it's faith that causes us to have access because it's faith that claims what Christ has done. But on the other hand, we shouldn't take communion lightly. It took the ripping of Christ's flesh to gain us access. And God calls us to value and to love the fellowship that he offers. So lesson two, man's works are not enough to gain uh, fellowship. Third lesson was that Christ's life was not enough to save us. Now that may seem like a strange statement unless you keep reading in your outline and the rest of the outline says he had to die as well. We needed both his active obedience as well as his passive obedience. His active obedience was the perfectly righteous life that he credits to us. His passive obedience is his death. And if Jesus led a perfect life and he did not die, his life would actually be a testimony against us. It would speak against the awfulness of our lives. Uh, remember how Hebrews says, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says that the veil represents Jesus Christ's flesh. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Now here's the puzzle. How could Christ separate us from God? Because the veil separates us from God, does it not? And it's very clear in Hebrews, the veil represents Christ's flesh. How could Christ separate us from God? Well, I think this is an important lesson for us to learn. The perfection of Christ, if that is the only aspect of our salvation that we understand, all it's going to do is it's going to sit in judgment on us. And this is where liberals fall down. Liberals want to look at Jesus Christ as their example. You know, he was a good teacher. But if that's the only view that you have of God, you're going to be shut out from God's presence because no one can imitate Christ's life perfectly. Yes, he is a standard of perfection, but as such, what he's going to remind us of is you're imperfect. You're imperfect. You have an inability to approach into God's presence. That's not going to help us by itself. How was it that the priest entered into the holy place? It was through the blood and only through the blood. The priest did not enter into the presence of God because of the beauty of the veil. No, its beauty was a constant testimony against the ugliness of his sin. That was no comfort whatsoever to him. He couldn't enter into the holy place because he meditated upon the fineness of that craftsmanship that, that, was, that was put into that veil. There was only one way to enter, and that was through the blood. And today it's the same. We cannot enter into the presence of Christ by meditating upon the beauty of Christ's life or seeking to copy his life. There is only one way to enter in. It is through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, and then, and only then, is the beauty of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Then it becomes a thing that carries us through. Hebrews 9, 7 says, not without blood. And by the way, that's a mistake in your outline. It's not Hebrews 9, 12. Hebrews 9, 7, not without blood. They never could enter into the holy place without blood. And so if you have a religion without blood, you have a religion without God. It's as simple as that. Now, liberals don't like that. Uh, you'll find liberals always take out the blood. That's very offensive to them. 
they do not like the idea that God brought a curse upon Christ, that he died as a substitute for us. Uh, that just seems very, uh, what's the term that they use, barbaric, uh, ancient, outmoded, uh, old-fashioned. But apart from the blood, the perfection of Christ's life is simply a curse. Jesus had to be torn apart in order for us to be united to God. Fourthly, they would have learned that Christ would only have to be sacrificed one time. It's only one time that the veil was torn, right? And so the blasphemy of Roman Catholic Mass, which re-sacrifices, they say, Christ over and over again, is an absolute denial of this miracle of the veil. It was only torn one time. His sacrifice accomplished once and for all our access into his presence. When he said it is finished, he meant it. There wasn't anything more that needed to be done. Let me read you a verse. Romans 6, 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. I think it's a very important verse to have in your arsenal to give to Roman Catholics. It says he dies no more. Yet they're saying, no, he gets sacrificed over and over again every time the Mass is being done. We don't believe in re-sacrificing. The next verse, Romans 6.10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And so this torn veil is not just an offense to Judaism, it's an offense to Roman Catholicism or any other works righteousness uh, religion. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says about Jesus that he entered through the veil, not around it, but through the veil. Uh, let me read that. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now get this phrase. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. And we would add, not as... Roman Catholics who try to re-sacrifice him often. Now, Hebrews says not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. And so if Roman Catholics are right that he needs to be re-sacrificed, what he's saying in Hebrews is he should have started to be sacrificed right from the beginning of creation because men had sinned right from the beginning of creation. He goes on, he says, but now... Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is, this is such a precious truth. There's nothing more that needs to be added. And the Lord's table testifies to the fact that we have communion now. We're not just hoping for it. Fifth lesson, very quickly, they would have learned that Christ's death was the only atonement, the only covering of sin. It wasn't animal sacrifices that tore the veil. Never once in all of history did animal sacrifices do that. But Jesus' blood did. His death did. The sixth lesson is that all priestly work is also done. We do not need any other mediator than Christ. And so I think it's no wonder that, again, Acts 6 says that many, a great many, priests became obedient to the faith. Why? There wasn't anything left for them to do. Once they believed in the Messiah, to whom all those sacrifices were pointing, they said, why even be in the temple? They left it. They became Christians. And yet in Roman Catholicism, as well as in many other traditions, there are mediators that take the place of Christ. I am not a mediator for you. You have direct access to the Father. Uh, some people will pray to Mary because they just think Jesus is too un unapproachable. So they'll pray to Mary, hoping he, she will pray to Jesus, and Jesus will pray to the Father. And some feel, man, I can't even pray to Mary. And so they'll pray to their dead relatives, who hopefully will pray to the saints, who will pray to Mary, who will pray to Jesus, who will pray to the Father. 
And it's just a, it's a dead legalism. It's a bondage that they find themselves in. There is only one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. And if you don't go through him, the veil remains on your faces. The seventh lesson that the priests would have learned has already been mentioned, and it spelled the end of the temple era. Uh, the high priest who crucified Christ was so hardened he would not accept this fact even after this veil was uh, ripped. They repaired him. They put him back up again. They went back to sacrificing. But really, this was a symbol of the fact that there would be no more sacrifices that God would receive as... Um, as being legitimate now that the final sacrifice has come. And so he prophesied within one generation that temple would be destroyed. And then the last lesson these priests would learn is that the torn veil spelled the beginning of a new boldness by which we could approach the throne. Uh, first verses of Hebrews 10 tell us, you guys ought to be terrified of coming before God because he is an awesome God. We ought to be terrified. But in Christ, we're secure. In Christ, we can have boldness, but it's not apart from him. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And um, when we come to the Lord's table, we can come with the full assurance that cleansed in the blood of Christ, we will be received. We can have full communion with him. And so that torn veil, when we think about that, it ought us to make us say with 1 Corinthians 1.31, let him who glories, glory in the Lord, not in ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We do glory in you. We bless you for the incredible salvation that you orchestrated. We see your hand of providence through every detail uh, that went on there. And, Father, we continue to see your hand of providence today, drawing people to salvation, opening their hearts to make them receptive, turning blind eyes to see the, 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 the truths and the glories of your Scripture. And I pray that we would <clears throat> be encouraged by your Word with the access that we have to your presence. We bless you, Father, for the privileges you have ushered us into. In Christ's name, amen.